0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Renew Church. My name is David. It's my pleasure to welcome you here. I am one of the many who are recovering from whatever this terrible, terrible flu is that has gone around our community. So I apologize if I'm not my ADD spastic self as I normally am up here, but maybe that's a good thing. Um, but I, uh, I hope and pray that if your family has had the, uh, the terrible experience of having this go through your house, that uh, the Lord has blessed you with healing. And I uh, would sure appreciate your prayers for mine. I have my wife and several of my kids are sick. So, boy, it is a nasty, a nasty flu season. Um, this morning, before we get into the Word, I wanted to just um, share with you, some of you are already aware, some of you maybe not, that Ben Wheeler um, passed away this week, tragically. And um, the details and the circumstances, um, they are tragic. Uh, we are... I had the pleasure of of knowing Ben for many, many years and that you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who had um, so deeply, passionately committed themselves to serving others in Jesus's name here in our town. So our kingdom, Jesus's kingdom has lost a great, great asset this week. And uh, he of course is survived by his wife and his kids and many, many who love and care for him. So I'm gonna pray for him and for the family. And uh, for us together, before we get into the Word, would you pray with me? Our oh Lord, our heart is is broken, is <coughs> so deeply grieved by the loss of Ben Wheeler. We uh, we just want to acknowledge, Lord, the the beautiful thing that you brought into our lives through his life. How for so many years and for so so many good years he invested himself for your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake here in our town and blessed so many lives, touched so many lives in such a powerful and a meaningful way. And now Lord, we turn to, to you and to your throne of grace for comfort and help in this deep, deep hour of need. And we pray for Kate and for the kids, and for the family and for so many who have loved Ben for so long and who are, are right now, Um, in a world of hurt, really trying to understand and to process. And we pray that you, the God of all comfort, would bring peace and would bring comfort, would bring strength, would bring uh, each breath as it's needed, Lord, in this new season, in this new reality, in this new paradigm. We pray that you would uh, use us as comforters to love and support the families And to bring great comfort to one another. Um, Fill us fresh with your spirit and use us, we pray. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, would you please stand with me this morning and grab your Bibles, please. And uh, turn those Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 this morning. As uh, we continue our study through this book. If you're here without a Bible, there are some men coming on the aisles right now with Bibles. You can... Raise your hand and they'll get you a Bible. Just keep your hand raised high so they could see you. Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to pick it up beginning in verse 11. (coughs) Where it reads like this When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and the authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Man, that is good for the bones, good for the soul. Let's pray. And so Lord, we lift your word to you now and ask that you would, Bless us deeply by speaking to us through these words, that through these passages that are on these pages that we would see our savior and then seeing him this morning be melted, be molded, be transformed, be encouraged, be emboldened, be transformed, be made new. Lord, as, as we continue to learn from what it is that your spirit had to say through Paul to this church in this letter, pray that you would, continue to inspire true Christian growth and maturity in each one of us. And that today would be a truly supernatural day of experiencing the presence of our maker as he graciously, lovingly, powerfully touches each one of our lives. Give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say. Give me lips to speak. We pray this together in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can have a seat. That's right, chorus of coughs, we're with you, we're with you. So here in this book, Paul is writing to a group of Christians and in this portion of the letter, he has been trying to stir them up to grow. His big push in this part of the book is that they might continue to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. He uses the picture of a tree digging its roots deeper and deeper and deeper to support more and more growth. Look at verse six of chapter 2. We see Paul writes, he says, And now just as you accepted (coughs) Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. And then your faith will grow. It will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. I mean, think about Paul. He's one of the very first Christian leaders. He is uh, tasked by God to take the, the truth of Jesus into the known world. And into the very beginning of the frontier of Christianity making its way across the globe. And everywhere he sees faith grow, it is so beautiful and precious to him. He sees a spark of faith in Christ and, and people started to gather together and churches started to form. And it's like this beautiful, such a precious, such a vulnerable thing. And every time he sees it, he sees those flames. It's like whatever he can do to fan those flames into a deeper, more powerful, more fervent fire. That is what he's passionate about. He wants to see these Christians grow and to mature into what it is that Christ has for them. And it's as if in this passage that we've come to this morning, uh, This is one of Paul's efforts to try to fan those flames into that deeper fire. He takes these Christians after telling them, I want your roots to grow deeper. And he hits them with one picture after the next, three back-to-back, very vivid pictures of what Jesus has come to do in the lives of a Christian. And the idea is is here is, is in painting these three pictures, Paul is trying to get these Christians to see Christ fresh in a way that makes their hearts melt that rivets their bones, that that stokes their souls to want to love Jesus more and to be more faithful and to be more bold and more passionate for Christ. There's a lot of things in life that can help us to grow as Christians. Sadly, one of the greatest things is suffering. And I think there's probably far fewer things in this world that help us to grow more than difficulty. But There are other things when we find ourselves blessed with a new inspiration, with a mentor, with a group of friends who just are really reaching for uh, stepping forward in faith. And we find ourselves caught up into the the tailwind of that. Um, But one of the most beautiful, one of the most uh, supernatural uh, faith-building experiences is when we see Jesus fresh or when we experience some fresh revelation of how great or of how beautiful or how wonderful that he is. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to do in this passage He's trying to stoke the, the faith, flame of our faith by giving us these beautiful pictures of what Christ has done for us. And so I hope this morning that our souls will be further transformed. I pray that we would experience some of that gratitude that Paul describes and that our faith would truly grow this morning, that our, growth, our roots would grow a little deeper as we look at these three images. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who um, he spoke on this passage several times, and in one of his teachings on this passage, uh, he says this at the beginning of his sermon. I thought it was very well said. He says, before I come to the subject of my discourse, I want every child of God whom I'm addressing to feel this, that the preacher's talk is to be about me this morning and about what Christ has done for me. He says, for remember, dear friends, that the work of Christ is as distinctly on behalf of each individual believer as if he or she were the only object of that divine love in the whole universe. And while it is true that Christ's work concerns all of his people, and it is a very great comfort that it is so, yet it is also true that it comes and concerns each one of his people. And it is the property, all the property of each one, and yet there's as much left over for all of us who believe in Christ. Spurgeon goes on, he says, I want you to know, excuse me, I want you just now to eat your own morsel, to claim your own portion, to take home to your own heart, what God has given to you by this beautiful covenant and so given to you that it can never be taken away from you. So I hope this morning, as we look at each one of these pictures, that something very personal will happen between each one of us, the God who made us, that we would see in Jesus Christ something so beautiful, so rich, that it produces in us that gratitude that produces Christian maturity and growth. So let's look at these three pictures. First, kind of an unexpected picture. I I wouldn't describe it as beautiful at first, but it gets there. Uh, The picture first is circumcision. That's what it is. Verse 11, here we go. (coughs) When you came to Christ, Paul writes, he says you were circumcised, but not with a physical procedure. Christ performed a kind of spiritual circumcision, which Paul describes here as the cutting away of your sinful nature. Now, upon this canvas on which Paul is going to paint these beautiful pictures of Jesus, the first picture he paints is circumcision, which is a little challenging to get my mind wrapped around the beauty of that. But (coughs) let me walk us through this and see if I can help us. Circumcision was a ritual. It was a religious ritual. Uh, given to the Jews by God, the very beginning with Abraham in Genesis 17. It was meant to be a physical expression, a religious ritual, but it was meant to be more than that. It was meant to speak to a spiritual dynamic to what it means to be the men and women of God, to be the people of God. That there was this cutting away or some type of transformation or change that was to occur when a human being came into a real relationship with the true and the living God. This idea of circumcision was not merely to be a physical experience, but was to speak to a spiritual reality. And that reality is spoken of throughout the Old Testament. In one place, Deuteronomy 30, uh, God speaking through uh, this speaker says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. The idea of circumcision was to speak of the fact that in coming into relationship with God, something inside of us would have to change. There would have to be something that would have to be cut away or removed for us to experience real communion, real relationship with God. It's what Paul describes in our text this morning when he describes Jesus's spiritual uh, circumcision that he, (coughs) excuse me, performs in the lives of Christians. He describes it as the cutting away of our sinful nature. And when we start to think less about circumcision and more about this phrase, the cutting away of our sinful nature, I think this is where the beauty starts to unfold. Let's stop and think about this for a minute. Jesus came to cut away our sinful nature. Now at first, I don't know how beautiful that is to you, but let's stop and consider what is meant by our sinful nature. It's an idea that has varying degrees of uh, reaction to it. Some people find it utterly insulting that a text of scripture like the Bible would uh, condemn humanity with such language as this sinful nature. It casts such a negative light on humanity. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that. <coughs> there is certainly a an error and it's not uh, consistent with scripture for us to have a view of mankind that is irredeemable because um, that's certainly not the text of scripture, not the message of Christ. But, there is something to this idea of this sinful nature that must be understood if we're ever going to understand the beauty of who Jesus is. The Bible describes that at the very beginning we were made in perfection with this relationship with God that was um, far greater, far sweeter, far more intimate than we could ever imagine in this world. I mean, the closest we could get to it would be the purest expression of love or of friendship that's unclouded by uh, Wrongdoing or unclouded by it. it hasn't been hurt yet. Think of an early friendship or an early romance when you haven't known each other long enough to have hurt each other, right? Um, there's something about our relationships at the beginning. We find a way to fake it until we, you know, break it. But in those early stages of a relationship, it's just it's it's delight, it's 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 joy, it's sweetness, it's 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 a net positive in our life with no. Uh, With no negative influence. And it's just this thing of beauty, but then it fades ultimately because we're human and we fail each other. But that uninhibited, that beautiful, sweet, intimate friendship, relationship, romance, that experience is the kind of relationship we were meant to experience with God for eternity until, of course, we failed and we rejected that Relationship. We threw off God's authority. We spurned his love. And in doing so, we broke the world. We broke our reality. The whole world fell and we fell. And in that fallenness, we experienced a kind of cosmic brokenness, a brokenness inside of us that is unmistakably there. Um, when, when the Bible describes our sinful nature, it's not just talking about our propensity to doing the wrong thing. Um, We're all tempted at times. We're all prone to weakness. But if we stop and think about the true enemy within us, we start to understand more and more the, the desperation of our state. You see, inside of each one of us lives something that is so deeply broken that it compels us to do things we would never in our right minds do to people we care so deeply about. Don't you know what I'm talking about? There is something so broken inside of us that compels us not to do things that we wish so desperately we had the boldness or the courage to do. Our pride, our fear, our lusts, our insecurities, these things are inescapable inside of us. And they, in some ways, plague us in the worst places of our lives where they if, we, if there was any possible way for us to will into existence a freedom, a separation from those things, we would have done it by now. But we're incapable of peeling away this God-awful broken nature that's inside of us, this sinful nature. It's far, far more powerful than we would ever dare want to believe. Uh, when C.S. Lewis lost his mother at a young age, it was the beginning of his uh, exit to believing in the idea of a, of a God, of a Christian God. Um, as a young man, he spent most of his life trying to avoid the idea of God um, and, you know, found himself pretty frustrated at the existence of the world, just very, very, um, <coughs> excuse me, angry at the fact that the world seemed to be such an unjust place. And uh, in his efforts to try to uh, push this idea of a need for God out of his life, one of the things that he tried to do was try to live a good enough life to prove to himself and to the world that look, there may be some people out there that may need a God, but I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't need this idea of God. I'll read to you from his autobiographical sketch in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says that an attempt at complete virtue had to be made. So for the first time, he says, I examined myself with a serious practical purpose and what I found there appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatred. He said, my name was Legion. You see, in his efforts to try to push away the idea of needing a God, he thought I can prove to myself that I don't need a God by just living a good life. And the problem is, is that if we will pay close attention to the lives that we live, we will be appalled at what we find. Uh, Lewis goes on to paint a very vivid picture of our state in one of his, uh, the Narnia series (coughs) books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, he paints the picture of this obnoxious little boy, Eustace, who was one of those kids that you just, you know, he was made to be strangled, kind of a kid. Um, He was just very greedy, very selfish, you know, just a very punk kid, you know, Um, not that you've ever met or been that kid. Um, He at one point finds himself whisked into the land of Narnia with his cousins, the Pevensey children. And while he's there, he happens upon a dragon's lair where there's some dragon's gold and everyone knows in Narnia, the dragon's gold is cursed. That's except for, of course, Eustace who went on greedily to put on one of the pieces of gold around a, his leg. And when he did so, he woke up the next morning, a dragon, the dragon's gold had cursed him and he had woke up this hideous beast and uh, the story goes on that at one point he tries to relieve himself. He wants to be a boy again. And he tries peeling off his dragon skin in an effort to make himself a boy again. And when, he desc- when Lewis describes Eustace trying to, to make himself not a dragon anymore, I think it is a beautiful picture of our state in our sinful nature. Look, listen to what he says here. Eustace speaking, he says, I started scratching myself and the scales began coming off all over the place. I scratched myself a little deeper and instead of just the scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started down to the well for my bath. But just as I got to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right. It only means I had another smaller suit underneath the first one and I'll just have to get it out too. So I scratched and I tore it, this underskin and it peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and I left it beside the other one and I went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off. Or I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and I got off a third skin, just like the other two. And I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself on the water, I knew it had been no good. You see, all of his efforts to try to shake himself from that hideous beast of a skin could not, <coughs> he could not succeed. Peel after peel after peel, it was dragon still. But then Aslan, the Christ figure in the Narnia series, steps onto the scene. It says here that the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke. You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. And the very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I had done to myself those other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth, as soft as a peeled switch, smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why I'd been turned into a boy again. I think Lewis here is painting for us the picture of what it is that Paul was trying to say to us. We are hopelessly coated and a brokenness that we have no ability to relieve ourselves from. But in Christ is hope to be undressed, to be uh, be made different, to be made whole. That in Christ, there is an ability, a supernatural ability to find relief from our sin nature. And it's a process and at parts it's very painful. But in Christ, there is hope that we don't have to be this week, the person that we were last week, that this month, we don't have to be the person we were last month, that this year can be a year of us growing less and less dominated by our fears and insecurities, by our lusts and by our pride, but more and more dominated by the freedom that's found in the Christ who can peel from us that sinful nature. You see, Jesus came to do in us what we long for, but are incapable of doing for ourselves, he came to bring us transformation. The second picture that Paul paints here is baptism, a little more beautiful at the surface than the first. Let's dive in, verse 12. He says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him, you were raised to these two words, so beautiful, new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Unlike bat, her circumcision, baptism has a beauty to it all by itself. <clears throat> uh, there's something so beautiful, so sweet to attend a baptism ceremony. Um, as a church family, we uh, have a, a rhythm of going down to the river. And there, men and women, boys and girls will follow Jesus as he followed his father's uh, command into the water to go and to stand before the community of this church and to identify with Jesus publicly and to say, with their physical presence that they want to follow the Lord, their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. And there is something so beautiful about that to see these lives stepping into that water to say, I wanna identify with Jesus. Baptism itself is a picture. It is a picture of what Jesus did for us and what Jesus wants to do in us. It's a picture of what Jesus did for us in baptism is pictured, as Paul describes here, Jesus' burial, and that Jesus went to the grave for us. Jesus lived a, a beautiful life, but he died a very gruesome death and was literally physically buried in the ground. And we, when we go into those baptismal waters, identify with Jesus and what he has done for us and dying for us. And we're put beneath that water to to represent Jesus's burial. But in baptism, we're raised up out of that water again, representing Jesus's uh, victory over the grave for us. Jesus conquered death for us. And that's the beauty, that's the picture of what baptism is trying to describe for us. I love how the song tells it in Death and His Grave. I'll read the lyrics to you. Though the earth cried out for blood, satisfied her hunger was. Billows calmed on raging seas for the souls of men she craved. The sun and moon from balcony, they turned their head in disbelief as precious love would taste the sting disfigured and disdained. So three days in darkness slept the morning sun of righteousness, but rose to shame the throes of death and overturn his rule. Now daughters and the sons of men would pay not their dues again. The debt of blood they owed was rent when that day rolled A new, for he has cheated death and seated us above the fall. In desperate places, he paid our wages one time, once and for all. On Friday, a thief, on Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but arose with the keys to hell on that day. The firstborn of the slain, that man Jesus Christ, laid death in his grave. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us in baptism, is showing us this is what Jesus did for us and what Jesus intends to do in us to give us resurrected new life. That's what he's painting a picture of here. You see, more than just peeling away our sinful nature, Jesus came to give us a new nature, to tear away at our insecurities and to fill us with contentment and boldness, to take away our our pride and our lust and to fuel us with holy vision, with new power, with new passion. You see, in Christ is not just this ability to somehow chain our wandering souls, but to be transformed into souls who can fly, who can be free to live out new meaning and new purpose. You see that the riveting soul uh, expanding vision that Paul is putting before us is that in Christ, is a whole new purpose, a whole new way of living. That's his intent here as he looks to speak to us and to say to us that Jesus came not only to, to peel away our sinful nature, but to give us new life. And lastly, we'll look at this third picture that Paul paints. He paints a picture of a record of charges that are against us. It's a terrifying picture that ends beautifully here as we look at it in verse 13. He says, you were dead because of your sins because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. And these next few words are so precious. For he forgave all our sins. Remember that, we'll come back to it. Here's the image in verse 14. It says that he canceled the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. You see, Jesus came to forgive everything to forgive it all. Not just the stuff that we so deeply regret now, but the stuff that we don't even recognize because we're incapable of seeing it just yet. Um, As I've continued to grow in my relationship with God, I realized that stuff that I started repenting for early was far from the big stuff. It was the big stuff to me then, right? It's the very obvious stuff. It's the stuff that I was most ashamed of, but that's because I hadn't realized the deeper stuff, the harder stuff, the stuff, that really, um, the stuff that really destroys the people that I care about through me, the stuff that really exploits itself through me. Um, I wish so badly that when I first met Christ, you could just like pray hard enough to like repent of it all and be done with it. But it just isn't like that. And even if you could somehow be forgiven of everything you prayed for, you would leave that prayer not fully knowing the depths to which you needed forgiveness. You don't realize how bad um, you've hurt the people you care about or you hurt the Lord over the years until the years go by and you look back and you realize I have far more to be ashamed of (laughs) than I ever dared, uh, you know, believe. But what's so beautiful about our savior is that the day that he embraced us, he knew it all. Like we just, we, we thought it was this bad. It was so much worse and he knew it all. He knew it all and he forgave it all. All of it. Past, present, future. All of it. To paint this picture, Paul, this is one of the gems of this book, verse 14, says that what Jesus did is like this. It's like the most terrifying of records a record of everything that we have done that we ought not to have done, a record of everything we ought to have done, but too afraid or otherwise incapable of doing. And imagine if just the sins of yesterday were on one piece of paper, if if a piece of paper could be big enough to hold it. How terrifying, how, how awful it would be to have to sit in front of that and, and even just acknowledge that it existed, let alone for it to be laid bare for others to see. And yet, Paul says, God knows every single thing that we've done, that we're doing, and that we're going to do. Every single one of those things is laid bare before the Lord. It's a record of charges against us. And Paul says in this verse 14, he canceled that record. He canceled it. It's a very, um, it's a very direct way of saying it. The uh, other translators put this blotted out or wiped out, which I really like, has a lot more of an aggressive tone to it than canceled. The idea is, is that he has erased that record, that it is no longer valid. <coughs> and it says here in verse 14, that he canceled that record by taking it away from us and by nailing it to the cross. There's a place where the psalmist celebrates the faithfulness of the Lord's love. In, verse, in Psalm 103, he says that the Lord is compassionate and merciful He's slow to get angry. He's filled with unfailing love and His unfailing love toward us who fear him. It's as great as, as, as the height of the heavens is above the earth, for he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You see, this is something that uh, I don't know that we'll ever understand until the other side of this life, but um, Jesus fully paid for every single one of our sins to the degree that now when God sees us who have placed our faith in Jesus he no longer sees our sin he sees the perfection of his son i don't understand that i i know my own sin not nearly well enough but i know it and i can't forget it <laughs> I, I would love to i'm really good at forgetting a lot of things i can't forget some stuff some stuff just sticks to the bones and it hurts and you kind of live with it for the rest of your life. But though that's how we see ourselves, it is not how our God sees us. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. It would make far more sense for him to hold this stuff against us or to be more suspect of us as we continue to fail. But when Jesus Christ went to that cross, he didn't just die for the sins that we have apologized for, he didn't just die for the sins that, for which we're now ashamed. He died for all our sins, every single one of them. In Isaiah 53, my probably, I don't know, it's probably my favorite. There's that line, all of us like sheep who strayed away, we left God's path to follow our own. And here it is, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all, just poured it out the whole of it, all of it, all of it. Jesus came to peel away our sinful nature. It's a process, it imparts very painful, but it's a reality and a hope. He came to give us a new nature, a new life, filled with resurrection power to be new people, new purpose, new passion. And he did so by taking all our sin. I hope and pray this morning that this has been a blessing for us, that we would leave here this morning melted a little more, transformed a little more, a little more grateful. I hope that this morning our roots have grown a little deeper as we've, as we've stopped to think about the beauty of what it is that Christ has done for us. In a moment, we're going to uh, enjoy communion together. Uh, it's a fitting way to spend some time here at the end of our service. Uh, the Elements representing Jesus' body and his blood, the bread and the cup are gonna be placed at these tables to your left and to your right. And uh, when you have a moment here, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward as I pray, as they do. When you, have, uh, when you would like, you can get up out of your seat, you get the communion elements, come back to your seats. We'll take them together. But this morning we'll get a chance to remember our savior uh, directly through the beautiful uh, sacrament of communion. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a, a holy and a precious thing to think about our savior today. It's a wonderful, it's a beautiful thing to think about his love, his faithfulness, Thank you this morning, Lord, for your grace that is greater than all of our sins. That in you, we have hope that uh, what we could never do for ourselves, you can do in us and making us new people, new men, new women. We do have a sin nature and we need a savior. We need someone who can peel away that, that itchy skin and truly help us be done with it. So Lord, we just invite you to do that work this morning. Invite the hand of God to come and appeal from my life, from our lives, those things inside of us which are broken, which are flawed. Lord, we invite your resurrection power to come and to fill us with new passion, new vision, new character, new nature. That this week would be a week of newness, of newly pressing forward, newly pressing in, newly digging deep, newly moving forward. And Lord, above all, we thank you for your forgiveness. What a beautiful, delicious word to be forgiven, to be free, to be released, to be brought back, to be made whole, to be given peace again. We thank you for your forgiveness. As we turn now to the communion table, would you help us individually now to remember our Savior as we spend this time considering Him? We pray this in Jesus' name.